So I saw a story it was on the uh, I came across it on the on the net, and it was a story on free range parenting. Some of you apparently have seen it, but essentially what it is, it's hands off parenting, and we're talking about four year olds, five year olds, six year olds, seven year olds, and essentially it's parents who have just chosen to say we do not want to do any kind of we don't have any kind of controls on our kids so they can go to bed when when they want to go to bed and they can get up when they want to get up and they can take a bath if they want to take a bath or not take a bath they can they can cut a watermelon with a really sharp knife they were doing that and hopefully everything works out okay for them and they can play outside with dangerous tools like hammers and axes and things along those lines. And they can run across the street in the middle of the night and, you know, kind of a, there's cars on the street. And, and, and the reason I'm saying that is because I'm watching this happen. And I'm hearing the parents say, you know, when they, and, and, and a child playing with a stove and touching the burner, and the, the mother saying, see, he's just learned that's hot. Yeah, he has. Um, and so it's interesting because this is all going on, and I'm thinking, this doesn't seem like a good idea to me. That's not really what I'm thinking, but let me just say that that's kind of what all I'm going to say about it. That being said, there's one thing that they do control with their children, which I thought was crazy. Not crazy, but very interesting. They control their diet. Very strict diet they give. So every other area is just kind of like, figure it out, kids. Figure it out, kids. But this one area is really controlled. Now let's not get off on that, because that's not really where I want to go. But it made me start thinking about how Christian parents, and again, I'm not trying to be the old guy on the hill saying, get off my lawn. That's not one of those moments that I'm having right now. It's really more of analyzing what's going on in our culture today. And what I see going on in our culture is that Christian parents, and many good parents, are controlling every aspect of their life. They're controlling their diet. They're controlling their hygiene. They're controlling their, their sleep hours. They're controlling their schoolwork. They're, they're making sure that their kids are res- getting responsible. They may even be tre- you know, teaching them manners and all those other things. They're, they're working hard at all these things, which is really good. That's really good. But there's one area that they're not, that I see that's kind of kind of so in other words, we have these free-range parents that are letting every other area, all these areas go, manners and everything. And yet the one area they're controlling is a diet. And on this side, I see Christians who are good parents that are controlling all these areas, but there's one area that they're letting go. And that's the area of their faith. That's the area of, of helping their kids become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Now, they're not doing it on purpose, I don't believe. I don't think that they're, they're, they're saying, you know, this is what I'm really trying. It, it, here's what's happening. What's happening is, through their behavior, through their actions, they're teaching their children that there's more important things than their faith. 
Like, for instance, when we have club sports on the weekend or we have other things going on or we're busy or we're tired, we just say, oh, let's not be part of the faith community this weekend. And by their choices, they've said, okay, the really most important thing, their faith, becoming fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, and most parents would say that's really the most important thing. They're letting it slide. And that's happening more and more and more and more, and it concerns me. So what I want to talk, do is talk about, because what we're really talking about in that whole thing is we're talking about how do we help our kids become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, disciples of Jesus Christ. Not just how do we help our kids, but how do we help ourselves? How do we help the people around us become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ? What does that look like? What does a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ look like? You may think, well, that's elite, you know? And what I'm going to show you is it's not so elite. It's really kind of a direction. It's really an attitude. It's really a, a direction that we take. So that's where we want to go this week and want to look at that. We're going to look at the life of Jesus. That's what we'll be doing. We're going through the Gospel of Mark. So if you turn to Mark chapter 3, verse 7... Let's dive in for a minute, because what I want to do this week is I want to show you where Jesus teaches us some really important principles about what does it mean to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus? What does it look like? And, and I think we'll find some answers from, from uh, Mark's gospel. So let me start reading at verse 7, and, and this is just to kind of give us context of what Jesus is doing, what's going on in, in his life and, and what is happening. In chapter 3, verse 7, it says this, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. And a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all that he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Edomia, and the regions across the Jordan around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many uh, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure, pure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. So we see Jesus. He's traveling. He's teaching. He's preaching the gospel, the good news. He's talking about the new covenant that he's bringing. And uh, he's healing people. And people are hearing about his healing. And people who have disease and people who have demons want to have the demons cast out and want to be healed. So he has a great following. But what, he, what is happening is, as he's performing these miracles, as he's casting out these demons, as he's doing all these miraculous signs, he's getting crowds. Now, he cannot get crowds too soon because he's on a mission. And his mission is kind of a timed mission. He has time that he has to spend with his disciples. He has to train his disciples. He, he needs about three, three and a half years to train his disciples to prepare for it. So he can't have this blow up right away. He's got ma to manage his time and make sure that it happens in the proper timetable. So that's why you find him sometimes. Maybe you read the Gospels and you see Jesus, he's healing somebody, and he says to them, don't tell anybody who did this to you. Why? Because he doesn't want the recognition. He doesn't want the public piling on to him. And he doesn't want, because why? Because when he gets a lot of following, then he's going to get the religious leaders. When he gets the religious leaders uh, following him and, and worried about him, now he's going to cause this confrontation to take place too soon. So he's trying to squelch that. He's trying to control it. 
And so that's kind of why he sends people away sometimes. And he says to them, don't tell anyone what happened here. Because he's trying to manage his timetable. And then it's very clearly here, he's going to choose the twelve. He's going to choose the 12. And that's the next part of the passage in verse 13. That's really where I want to focus, but I wanted to give you that context because maybe you've read the Bible before, you've read the New Testament before. You say, well, why does Jesus do that? Why does he shoot people away? Or why does he tell people to be quiet? Well, that's why. Because he doesn't want this confrontation that he knows is going to come to come too soon. All right. So Mark chapter 3, verse 13, here's what it says. Jesus went up on the mountainside, and he called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that they might, he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve that he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave, also gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he uh, gave them the name Bonegish, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So uh, it's very interesting who Jesus chose and who he passed over. Now, the first question I want to address is this. Notice he chooses 12. So he's got more than 12 people following him. But out of that group of people that are following him, he chooses 12. Because it says he, 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 he called to him those he wanted. So there's a group of people following him, and he calls 12 of them, and they go up on the mountain. Now the question is, why did he choose 12 apostles? In the Old Testament, Moses took, uh, got the Old Testament law. We call it the Old Covenant. It was an agreement between God and his people. And essentially what the Old Covenant said to the nation of Israel, to the 12 tribes of Israel, was if you follow the law, if you follow the, the tenets of the law, your life will go better, and I will bless you. If you don't follow it, you won't be blessed by me. And things won't go well for you. That's essentially what the Old Covenant was. We think of the Ten Commandments as being part of the Old Covenant, and they are. And essentially, Jesus or Moses takes, got these on a mountain, and, and God gave him this covenant, and he said, if my people will follow me and follow these, good things will happen. But if they don't follow me, if they don't follow the covenant, then bad things will happen in their lives. And we see that happening. And that's a lot of what's going on in the Old Testament. So we have the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. So now what do we have with Jesus? Jesus is now the new or the final Moses. He calls him up on a mountain, right? And he tells him there's a new covenant. And you're going to be the purveyors of my new covenant. You're going to be the ones that are going to be the heralding my new covenant and my new initiatives of the new covenant. Uh, They're going to fulfill the law and the prophets. They are going to replace the Ten Commandments in just two commandments. So Jesus is saying the old covenant is out, the new covenant is in. The, the, the way of Moses is done. The way of the new way is coming through me. And you are going to be, you 12, are going to be the final, the, the final portrayers of the new covenant. That's essentially what is going on here. Now, Jesus summarized his new covenant. And he did that in Matthew chapter 22. And uh, the verses you'll see on, on the screen. Here's what it says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest command. commandment. 
The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets. Notice, all the law and the prophets. That means from the beginning to the end. From the beginning of the Old Covenant to the end of the Old Covenant. Beginning Genesis through Malachi. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, this is very important. You know, oftentimes we say, you know, I, I just don't know what it means to be a good follower of Jesus Christ, a good disciple of Jesus Christ. You say, what should I do? I mean, <laughs> we have, I read books on it. It just seems so complex. There's so many things I want to do. I just want to tell you that if you want to get a good start on what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, right here it is. Jesus summarized it for you. Love the God, Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, right? And then love your neighbor as yourself. That's essentially what he says. Now, here's the point. And this is, this is where we, a lot of the New Testament is written to really apply the, this, the, this new covenant. And it's interesting how it's applied. Because we often think, well, I want to love God. Here's the thing. Maybe you never thought about this. In a very real sense, you can't love God without loving your neighbor. How do you prove you love God? You believe in Jesus? Good for you. So does the devil. I mean, how do you prove that you have love for God? The answer is, it's almost, I would say, it's virtually, if not impossible, to prove that you love God if you don't love your neighbor. Now, people think they can love God and hate their neighbor. But Jesus would have none of that. You see, he's not saying... It's both and, not either or. In other words, he, what Jesus is saying is you can't love God and hate your neighbor. You can't love God and hate your neighbor. There's, there, there's a point where you have to understand that when you say you love God, one of the ways, one of the most powerful, one of the most uh, uh, demonstrative ways that you can show your love for God is how you love each other, how you love your neighbor. Isn't that what Jesus said in his high priestly prayer? Jesus prays this prayer with his disciples before he goes to the cross. And he says, Father, I pray they be one. I pray that their love for one another would be a testimony to the world. Well, this is pretty big. This is pretty big. So understand this. that This, this is a summary of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That you love God, but you show your love for God by how you love one another. So that brings into question how you gossip, how you talk about other people, how you treat other people. And, you know, you look at people, you know, I told you the story about free-range parenting. And some people would say, what's wrong with them? They're just bad people and horrible. And, yeah, that's one approach you could take. You could say they're misguided. You could say they need help. You could say that they're using the best information that they have. It's probably wrong. You could say they don't know Jesus and they... You know, there's all these things going on that they're, they're, they're struggling with. And you could say, you know what? They need help. Uh, there was a day I needed help, too. There was a day I needed wisdom, too. There, there's dumb things that I have done. So there's a way that you can come at those things in different ways. You can come at them with law or you can come at them with grace. You can come at them and say, I don't understand it. I don't like it. But I know that I can pray for that person. I know that I could help that person if I knew them personally. Um, this, though, is a summary of what it means to be a Christian disciple, that you love God with everything that you have, and you love your neighbor as yourself. Now, let's just get into who he chose. 
it's interesting who he didn't choose. He didn't choose the religious elite. You would assume that Jesus, the Messiah, who would come, would find the leaders of the, the religion, the re- leaders of the old covenant, who were the scribes and the Pharisees, and say, I've got my guys. You know, the, these are the guys, right? But he doesn't do that. It's interesting. And by the way, in the Old Testament, it's very interesting. The people you think that, that God would choose, he doesn't. He chooses the underdogs. He uses the overlooked. You know, when he comes to Jesse's family looking for a king, he doesn't choose the oldest son. He doesn't do the second or third or fourth or fifth. He comes down to the runt of the litter, David, right? And David becomes one of the greatest kings that Israel ever knew, but he was the overlooked one. He was the runt of the litter. He was the one that no one thought he could be the king, but he was. But Jesus doesn't choose the scribes and the Pharisees. Um, now, by the way, uh, before we go and become very judgmental in the scribes and Pharisees, realize that within the scribes and the Pharisees, there were some who were open to Jesus' teaching. We know of one, and for sure, John chapter 3, we know Nicodemus was a teacher of the law. He was a, he was a Pharisee, a scribe and a Pharisee. So he was a teacher of the law, and he, he came to Jesus at night, and he ultimately, uh, as you read the rest of the gospel, he ultimately became probably a follower of Jesus Christ. But he was afraid of his position, and his, uh, it was in jeopardy because Jesus was an unknown commodity. Now, so the religious leaders would have been the most educated. They would have no, known all about the prophecies, but Jesus didn't choose them. He bypassed them, and instead he chose the uneducated, the common man, the blue-collar, and the hated to be his disciples. He chose the blue-collar disciples. So he goes upon his mountain. He chooses 12 and they're called in Mark the 12, the 12. Now, who are they? Well, we know there was Peter, James, and John. Now, Peter, James, and John formed the inner circle. They were the ones that were the closest to Jesus. They were there when uh, the, Jesus raised the little girl from the dead. They were there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, they were there when, in the garden when Jesus asked them to pray. So they were there, the key moments... Of, of, of the life of Jesus. So you had Peter, James, and John, and they became part of the inner circle. You have Matthew. We talked a little bit about Matthew a couple weeks ago. He was the hated tax collector, right? Um, Jesus uh, choosing Matthew. Uh, in, by the way, what's interesting is Matthew, what does he do? He throws a Matthew party. Uh, that's some people call them Matthew parties because he invited all his buddies all his fellow tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus was there. And that's one of the things religious leaders, it bothered them. He says, why are you eating and drinking with all these sinners and tax collectors? Well, it was a Matthew party. You know, he just invited his friends to come to the party to be with Jesus. So all the sinners and tax collectors were present. And then you have Simon the Zealot. Now, probably Simon the Zealot would uh, would have been a Jewish nationalist, and he would be coming from a very different perspective from Matthew. Matthew would have been working for Rome, in a sense. He would have been seen by his people as a sellout, as somebody who basically was making money off of his own people. Now, Simon the Zealot would have been, uh, if you read the book of Maccabees, which is a book that was written during the intertestamental period of time, it talks about uh, this family called the Maccabee family that basically had a number of sons that basically tried to uh, take the Roman bondage off of them, and they had warring parties where they would go out and fight against the Roman uh, soldiers. Um, so Simon would have would have resonated with the Maccabees, 
he would have been a Jewish nationalist. He would have been uh, against the Roman rule. And he would be looking for Jesus to be the one who would come, who would take the, the, the bondage of Rome off of the people of Israel. That's what he's looking for. So you can see Matthew and Simon would have been kind of at odds with each other. And then, of course, you have Judas, the betrayer. He is the one who sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Now, one of the questions that uh, people ask is, uh, why did Jesus even choose Judas? And by the way, Judas was, most scholars believe Judas was trusted, uh, was well trusted because he managed the money, he managed the purse strings. And he, he, we know, as you read through the Gospels, you read he was taking some of the money out you know, of there, so he wasn't trustworthy. But he gave the impression that he was trustworthy because all the disciples thought, he, you know, if you're handling the money, you're, you're hoping that the person handling the money is trustworthy. Well, they thought Judas was. But the question is, why did Jesus choose Judas? I mean, Jesus chose Judas knowing that he would betray him. Uh, he knew that G- Judas would play a part in, by betraying Jesus. Now, some, some and, and the reason is because in, in the Old Testament, there, as we read the, the prophetic, the messianic passages, it describes this Messiah who's coming. Sometimes it describes him as ruling and reigning, but sometimes it's, it describes him as suffering and going through times of betrayal and things along those lines. And so one of the verses, Psalm 41.9 says, Even my close friends, someone I have trusted who shared my bread has turned against me. And many scholars look at that as being a messianic sign referring to Jesus, referring to Judas betraying Jesus. Now historically, Psalm 41, the context of that, it's a psalm of David, and David is speaking of a, a very close uh, friend of his, Ahithophel. Now, Ahithophel was his basically second in command. He was his trusted advisor. And Ahithophel uh, basically joined David's son, Absalom, in a coup attempt. So David's family was a mess. It was an absolute mess. And one of his sons tried to take the throne from David. And so David's trusted, trusted advisor, Ahithophel, um, basically, uh, what happened is Ahithophel joined forces with uh, Absalom in trying to take the throne from David. And so that's the reference that the psalm is talking about. But the reference, many scholars see that's referring to the betrayal, the ultimate betrayal by Judas betraying Jesus. Um, you read the prophet Zechariah. And Zechariah has a prophecy about the betrayal of, Jude, uh, betrayal of Jesus by Judas. With even more detail, it tells us the exact price of the treachery. Notice, let me read it to you, Zechariah. This is Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13. I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver, and the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter the handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. And as we read through the Gospels, we see this, this passage is dramatically played out in the life of Judas. 
So, the, so, so one of the reasons that Judas was, was chosen was because he was, one, was going to betray Jesus, and Judas was that one. Now, some people say, well, wait a minute. Was Judas really free? I mean, after all, if, if this has been predicted from long ago that, that somebody, and we, we take that to be Judas, was going to betray Jesus, and Jesus knew that he was, uh, Judas was going to betray him, doesn't that mean that Judas really wasn't free, that it was in the cards for him to betray Jesus? In other words, how can you hold him responsible if he's merely a robot carrying out a predetermined, his predetermined actions? Now, this is uh, that whole sovereignty of God, free will of man, and we see this all through the Scripture. It's a, it's, a, it's a mystery. It's not a contradiction. It's a mystery. But Jesus, as we look at the life of Jesus, on many occasions he called Judas to repentance with his love, pleas, and rebukes. I believe Jesus tried over and over and over to try to woo Judas away from betraying him. Let me give you one I think of the most powerful ones. It's John chapter 13, verse 21. Jesus is at the Last uh, Supper and in the upper room, and he says, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another and at a loss of which of them he meant. You know, it's interesting to me. So, if you've been with these guys for three years, roughly three and a half years, and everybody's looking at everyone else, I mean, if you, if he was really a bad guy, uh, you would go, oh yeah, it's him, you know, and everybody would look at the same person, but they're all looking around, because they have no clue who this is. Jesus does. His disciples stared at one another, and the loss of which of them he meant. One of them the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, now understand this, they're not sitting in chairs around a table, okay? They're sitting on the ground and they're leaning on their, uh, their sides and they kind of lean all in the one direction and John's probably leaning this way and Jesus is here and Peter says, hey, ask, him, ask Jesus who it is, Okay? So leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give a piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, you might think, well, duh, why couldn't you figure it out? I mean, he just dipped it and gave it to Judas. Of course, Judas is the one. But we don't know the timetable. We don't know if... If this was going to be part of the thing or part of the serum, we just don't know. The the point is it wasn't obvious. It's very clear that it wasn't obvious to them. And these are not, these are intelligent people. Now notice it says, and I think this is a key point. As soon as Judas took the bread, and by the way, before this even happened, Jesus washed their feet. So uh, as soon as Jesus... Judas took the bread, uh, Satan, it says, entered him. And I think this was the turning point. This was the point of no return for Judas. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. 
But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to go buy what was needed for the festival and to give him something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. So a couple things here. Number one, this just goes to show you that Judas was well respected by the rest of the disciples and looked very favorably upon. I mean, he was the one you would see. He would be the last person that you would suspect. That's kind of the way that Judas was. But here what we see is Judas was responsible for his betrayal, but he crossed a line of no return. Notice it says, as soon as he took the bread, Satan entered him. And he would fulfill his mission to betray Jesus willingly. It was his choice, but it was also God's plan. I don't know how that works together. That's a mystery. Mysteries are things that we don't have enough information to solve. Carol and I are watching some of these British shows on TV where you're trying to figure out who did it. And most of the time we can't tell to the end and there's some convoluted story that you say, well, I would have never figured that out. It was a mystery. I didn't have enough information to understand it. Well, this is a mystery. We don't understand this. But it certainly is a tension within the Scriptures. Now, there's a key phrase there that Mark uses and he's not telling us what time of day it was. He says that immediately when, when Satan entered him and Judas left and he says, and it was night was night what he's saying there is there is a spiritual darkness that just took over there is a bad thing that just happened here and when when you see the gospel writers say it was night this is a this is telling the reader this is a, a very dark spiritually dark moment at this moment now one of the lies of the enemy is this. If you walk away from Jesus, you'll find freedom. Or if you never give your life to Jesus, you'll find freedom. Now, Adam and Eve were told the same lie. They were told, well, if you eat of this tree, then you'll be free. You won't be restricted. God is restricting you, and he knows that if you eat of this tree, you'll be free, and he doesn't want you to be free. And too many people believe this lie. It's an old lie. It's the same lie that Satan has told for centuries. But here's what you will find. You will always find yourself in the darkness when you walk away from Jesus. Always. You will always find yourself in the darkness when you walk away from Jesus. Now, what are some lessons that we can learn from this passage? Number one, it's not where you start it's where you finish. It's not where you start, it's where you finish. Jesus chose his disciples not because of who they were, but because of who they would become. It's very important. Remember I said he, he overlooked or he passed over the religious leaders who were at a different point and had a lot of knowledge and a lot of information. But he passed over them and he took common blue-collar fishermen. Jesus chose his disciples not because of who they were, but by who, who they would become. And here's what a disciple looks like today. A disciple answers the call of Jesus. And this, you see this all over in the gospel, where Jesus is calling people to follow him. And it says this in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciple, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. If you are a disciple, you follow Jesus. 
The question is, have you heard his call and have you responded to his call? He is calling you, and if he's calling you, are you following him? Secondly, a disciple is found to be with Jesus. One of the things that we see that happened uh, after the resurrection of Jesus is we see a very a big turning point in the lives of Peter and the rest of the disciples. They become very bold. They were cowering before, but they become very bold. And they become very incredible communicators in their boldness and and what they share. Peter is one uh, example. And you read about this in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, where Peter is brought before the religious leaders. And they're basically saying, you need to stop preaching. And here's what it says in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. All those years paid off. They had been with Jesus. The point is, when you're with Jesus, it shows. Number three, a disciple shares what they know about Jesus Matthew's gospel in chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. One of the most powerful ways that you can, you can to witness Jesus Christ, that you can acknowledge Jesus Christ is through baptism. If you've never been baptized publicly as a, an adult, a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to challenge you to come to a baptism class that we're going to be offering in, in uh, uh, well, the end of the month in July, in the next couple of weeks. But that is what baptism is. It's a powerful outward de- demonstration of your acknowledgement of Jesus Christ of your inward faith. Disciples don't know everything, but they share what they know. They share what they know. Number, th- uh, number four, a disciple is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Uh, we are told in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will, the, G- Jesus is talking to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. That wasn't just a promise to his disciples, it's a promise to us. Jesus says, I'm going to leave you another comforter, another of the same kind, and he won't be with you, he will dwell within you. We, have the, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. His disciples go in the power of the Spirit. So that's number one. Okay? So it's not where you start. It's where you finish. Number two, you can be close to Jesus and still not get Jesus. You can be close to Jesus and still not get Jesus. Judas is probably the greatest example of somebody who get, gets so close to Jesus. Put on the perfect facade of a being a follower of jesus and not get jesus you see there's a lot of people who believe in jesus but they don't follow him in that day there were a lot of people listen everybody that saw jesus believed that he existed but not everybody followed him we think today because we believe jesus existed that we're in no not any more than the people who rejected Jesus. You see, it's not, it's not just because you believe in Jesus doesn't, doesn't mean you're in. You could believe in Jesus, but if you're not following him. I mean, that's really what James says about the, the, the demons. He says, they believe in Jesus and they shudder. 
They have better theology than we do, probably. They, they know who Jesus is, but they just don't want to follow him. There are many people who, who do things for Jesus, but they don't know him. In other words, they do all these good works, but the idea is that they'll have a resume one day that they can say, look at what I've done for you, now you owe me. There are many people who, who like Jesus, but don't, they don't believe in him. They don't believe in him. And there are many people who want to follow Jesus. But they're just too busy. Sometime, someday, somewhere. Last point. It's never too late. Today is the day to repent. I believe Jesus gave Judas every opportunity to repent. He gives us the same chance to repent. You are never too far gone, too far away, or too bad to repent. Jesus was saying to Judas, this is your day of salvation. This is the time of God's favor. This is your opportunity. Paul says in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 6.2, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. And my question to you, whether you're, you're at this campus or at the Roshik campus or watching online is has there ever been a day or a time where you've heard the call of Jesus? And how did you respond? Paul says today's the day. Judas had one last chance. And when he made the choice not to follow Jesus, said Satan entered into him and it was all over at that point. He fulfilled his destiny, but he freely chose it. I don't understand how that works, but here's the point. Every one of us has a choice and opportunity to follow Jesus today. So if you're a parent, how are you doing in helping your children become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ? What choices are you making that are showing your children that being in the community of faith being a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, loving God and loving others, and loving even your enemies, those, those values, those, those, those central things of the, being a Christian, what are you doing to say those are the primary parts of our lives? Everything else is secondary to those. If you are a follower and you say, I just don't know where to start, start with the great command. Love God. And love others as yourself. That's what it is. If you're hearing his call, respond. Not tomorrow, not next week, today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing uh, us to a place where you, you've really summarized what it means to be a follower of your son Jesus that it's not really how much we know it's not where we start it's a matter of obedience it's a matter of repenting it's a matter of turning and coming to Jesus it's a matter of giving our life to him because he gave his life to us if there's anyone here who's never turned their heart to Jesus or listening online or at 
whatever campus, Father, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. For the rest of us, Father, may your spirit take something, bring it directly to our hearts so that we are a better follower of Jesus Christ. Because we have interacted with your word and because we are allowing your Holy Spirit to direct and lead and guide our lives. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.